Welcome back to the Complete History of Coffee, Episode 3, Coffee Civil War. Grab your favorite caffeinated beverage and let's get started. Today I'm going to be trying a traditional Turkish coffee made in a Turkish sive. The coffee I'm trying is from Cost Plus World Market. I got their Ethiopian Mocha Java blend. So first I'm going to be smelling the coffee. So right off the bat, this coffee smells almost Latin American in origin. It has a little bit of a nutty chocolatey kind of smell. There's also a little bit of a roasty I'm actually not really getting as many of those normal African smells, which would be normally a little more on the fruity side. Going ahead and slurping it. So again, this coffee is pretty chocolatey. Um, it is called the Mocha Java, and I wanted to try that one because not only is it Ethiopian, the origin of coffee, but also because of Mocha, which was one of the large ports in Yemen. Now, there is a little bit of coffee sediment as this is a Turkish coffee. So as I'm drinking it, I'm getting a little bit of coffee grounds, but it's very finely ground, so you don't get a whole lot of it. I am also pairing this coffee with a Turkish Delight. So this Turkish Delight is some sort of fruity candy, and it's dipped in chocolate. And the chocolate is definitely adding to the flavor of the coffee, which already, like I said, is very chocolatey. But... The interesting part is the fruity aspect is bringing out a little bit of the fruity African origin of the coffee. For those of you curious as to why coffees from different regions of the world taste different, we can simplify this in two ways. The first, the regional taste profiles, namely the primary growing regions of the world. And second, the process to prepare the coffee. The regions which we are talking about are primarily along the equator, or the coffee belt as we can call it. We have Africa, Asia Pacific, and Latin America. Africa and the Middle East are known for having floral and citrusy flavors. Asia and the Pacific region are known for earthy and herbal flavors. And Latin America is known for having nutty and chocolatey flavors. Part of this is due to the soil of the region such as from ash of volcanoes in the Asia-Pacific region. But the other aspect of coffee's flavor profile is the process. In Asia, they typically use a semi-washed process, which creates a full body of spicy flavors and a balance of acidity and herbal flavors. Parts of Africa, namely Ethiopia and Yemen, are known for using natural processing on drying beds, which gives the coffee a fruity flavor. Latin America, my personal favorite, generally uses a wash process, which helps to develop the flavor, creating a more consistent and acidic flavor. I want to begin by presenting some traditionally believed ideas behind how coffee's growing popularity led to opposition by the ruling class in the Islamic world. First, the Islamic world believed coffee was alchemically or chemically harmful, bad, and in some cases even went against the Quran. Second, the more pious members of society rejected coffee because it was a bida, or innovation, which was viewed as heresy. Third, the ruling class feared the political activities which became a central part of coffeehouse culture. And finally, the officials in charge of public morality found many coffeehouse patrons indulged in improper pastimes such as gambling or unorthodox sexual situations. 
With this in mind, let's get back to our story and see how coffee would play out in the Islamic world. Medieval Arab chroniclers attempted to fill in the gaps on the origins of coffee by creating legendary accounts, and in the case of Abu al-Tayyab al-Ghazi, he wrote that Solomon was the first to make coffee. In his account, Solomon visited a town being ailed by some disease, which the angel Gabriel told him to cure using roast coffee beans from Yemen. After brewing the drink and giving it to the townspeople, they were all cured of their illness, and coffee was then forgotten about until the 16th century. This story was part of a propaganda campaign to make Yemen the origin place of coffee. Looking at more examples, there was also an account by Abd al-Ghafar, who stated a man by the name of al-Dubana went to Ethiopia and witnessed coffee, although even the writer Ghafar is skeptical about the validity of this account. If the account does hold true, it tells that Dubana found the people of Ethiopia using kawa. By saying they use kawa, this could mean drinking it, or it could even mean eating the coffee cherry. However, the Arabic word boon is typically used to describe the coffee cherry, and the husk is known as kashir, while kawa is generally used to describe a brewed coffee drink. Although these points of clarity may hold little importance to the writers of the time who may have used them interchangeably, it is important to understand when coffee was first made into a drink which led to its rise in popularity in coffee houses. The story continues as Dubana makes his return voyage to Arabia and gets sick on his way home. He then tries some of the coffee, supposedly drinking it, which helps him to recover from his illness faster. We are unsure if coffee was being grown in Arabia by this point or not, which could mean he introduced coffee to Arabia from Ethiopia, or coffee may have already existed in Arabia and was simply not used by many people. We do not know the date of the voyage, but we do know he died in 1497. Jazuri debates this account and states it was a Sufi by the name of Al-Maki who first introduced Kawa and made it popular in Yemen. The word kawa originally referred to a wine or the process of making someone's desire for something lesser, such as a person's loss of appetite with wine or reducing the desire for sleep in the case of coffee. Further, coffee originated from the region of Ethiopia, which was named kafa, which may also relate to why some people wish to describe it as kawa. There is another account by Murad Gaydolson attributing the first use of coffee to a Sufi in Mocha by the name of Ali ibn Omar al-Shadali sometime in the late 14th century. Ali was apparently a well-known local healer who fell from the king's graces after being discovered with the princess. While we don't know what happened with the princess, according to the account, Ali was then banished from the city of Mocha. He then discovers a bush which had red berries and so boiled them, but found the berries were still hard to chew. So he drank the water that he had used to boil the berries and felt rejuvenated, and was able to survive on only coffee while in the desert for some time. Once he returned to Mocha, he shared the effectiveness with his disciples. Its popularity grew, and the port city gained much wealth from exporting coffee, making Ali a popular figure within the town's history. Now, if you're asking, didn't we already hear this story? 
then good job paying attention to the last episode. This story does bear a striking similarity to the story of Haji Omar, who we mentioned last time, with both figures being Sufis who were banished from Mocha, survived on coffee in the wild, and surprised everyone by returning alive with this new miracle bean. While we have no definitive answers as to why there are two nearly identical stories, I imagine it is likely the same person who simply received two different names after several centuries of something like the game of telephone had its effect. Now, Omar was said to have discovered coffee in 1285, and Ollie made his discovery closer to 1400. And as a side note, in the last episode, we mentioned Mr. Akbar, who Haji Omar was the disciple of claimed the first discovery of coffee from birds, or bird poop coffee, as you may remember it. This begs the question of why Omar would claim discovery of coffee if he was the disciple of the man who already discovered it. I came across an alternative version of Omar's story, in which he was the disciple of someone named Abd al-Qadir, and he was cast out to a cave in the desert near Osab after he was caught practicing medicine on the princess, instead of his master, and as a result he was banished and so discovered coffee. Combining these various versions of the story, I think we get a fuller version of this story, with a man in Mocha being banished for practicing medicine on the princess, and then bringing back the coffee he had discovered, and then being made a saint as a result. The more interesting question than who first discovered coffee in Yemen, be it Omar, Ali, or Mr. Akbar, was why coffee took off with such popularity in spite of being an anti-religious and anti-political drink, or perhaps as a result of these factors. As we already discussed, some believe it was the kingdom of Aksum who brought coffee over when they conquered Yemen, while others believe Yemeni traders brought it back with them from Ethiopia. Yemen was controlled by the Mongols until 1260, when the Mamalek Sultanate of Egypt defeated the Mongols. Under the Mamalek Empire, coffee spread by the first decade of the 16th century from Yemen to Hejaz and Cairo, later reaching Syria in another decade. After the Ottoman Empire conquered the Mamalek Empire in 1517, Coffee then expanded to the Levant region of the eastern Mediterranean. By 1530, the first coffee house was opened in Damascus. Soon after, coffee houses were established across the Ottoman Empire. In 1538, the Ottomans conquered Yemen, helping to further spread coffee across the empire. The Turkish name for coffee, kave, was one change made with another change occurring later by the time the Ottomans were producing coffee, in which coffee was now roasted over a fire, and then the grounds were poured into a mix of boiling water and reboiled several times. Coffee spread like wildfire in the Middle East, quickly leading the ruling class to be concerned about the rapid popularity. In 1587, Abd al-Qadir al-Jazari wrote a work tracing the history of coffee's legal issues up to that point. His work credits the first person to sanction coffee into Yemen after visiting Persia and discovering its medical benefits. Dating this event to 1454, his work credits a man named Sheikh Jamal al-Din, Mufti of Aden. A Mufti is an Islamic legal expert who was granted ruling over religious matters. His work traces the journey of coffee from Yemen to the greater Islamic world, dating coffee's arrival to Mecca and Medina in 1414 
Cairo in the early 1500s, and then to Damascus, Baghdad, and finally to Constantinople in 1454. So while we know coffee had been present in Yemen as early as the 1300s, it was during the mid-1400s coffee was recognized as a legal crop in Yemen. According to the Westerner John Ellis, from his book An Account of Coffee, the first two coffee houses in the world were opened in 1475 in Constantinople. The first by a man named Shims, and the second by Hecken. In his account, these early coffee houses hosted intellectuals and poets. As we will see, coffee houses in Europe and the Middle East both grew to represent a shared atmosphere of intellectualism. The first recorded shipment of coffee was in 1497, out of the port of Zila, among cargoes of spices from India sailing over the Red Sea. Companions from Gujarati took control of the trade of coffee across the Indian Ocean and began loaning money to farmers to grow coffee in Yemen. These coffee plantations started production in the 1540s and then continued to be the only producers of coffee for 150 years straight. The two main ports in Yemen, Mocha and Hudaydah, were the distribution centers of Yemen, with Hudaydah supplying the Ottoman Empire itself and Mocha shipping coffee to other regions of the world. Mocha would become the primary port in Yemen and would eventually supply European traders in the 18th century who wished to buy coffee. The high demand for coffee by Europeans and the insufficient ability of Mocha to supply them led to alternative ports being used and eventually Mocha declined as a result, which coincided with the shift in the Islamic world from coffee to tea. In 1523, Mohammed Ibn attempted to close down coffee shops in Mecca, but he was succeeded by his son who not only disagreed with his father's views on coffee, but actually served it to his guests. Nearly 20 years later, in 1544, the Ottoman government sent word to Hejaz that coffee was outlawed again. The town did not comply with this command, however, and continued coffee consumption anyway. Around the same time, Cairo experienced disagreements revolving around coffee from immigrants who brought with them coffee and opposition to it. The leader of the coffee opposition movement in Cairo was led by a man named Ahmad ibn Abd al-Hag al-Sunbati, who followed in his father's footsteps as to the hatred of the drink. His faction of anti-coffee followers began attacking coffee houses in 1537 or 35 after a statement was released regarding his dislike of coffee. The anti-coffee faction destroyed fixtures and attacked people in coffee houses. In response, coffee drinkers took to the street and a civil war almost ensued. The issue was brought before a judge in Cairo who tested the claims of coffee's intoxicating properties by serving it to a council of men and seeing what its effects were. After determining it had no ill effects, he sided with the legalization of coffee. I can't help but imagine people getting into a civil war over coffee with one side flying a coffee flag and shotgunning coffee like a can of beer before battle, with the other side claiming religious conservatism and struggling as a result to retaliate in early morning battles because they didn't get their morning cup of coffee. Better yet, this would be like people going to civil war today over the legalization of something like alcohol. 
the legalization of coffee on the grounds, pun intended, of religion were disputed. Unlike wine, which was more agreed upon as being taboo by religious community, coffee led to a greater conflict. Coffee is not talked about in the Quran, so it is through interpretation of the Quran why Islamic law could be argued against the consumption of coffee. One such argument was coffee drinking was inherently wicked because of the pleasure which people derived from drinking it. This led to the idea of coffee as a devil's drink. Coffee, however, was also disapproved of by some in the secular community due to the gatherings in which people were drinking it and misbehaving as a result. While wine can cause drunkenness, coffee cannot be argued so directly against. The opposition to coffee then came from coffee's ability to be mind-altering. Opponents to coffee could cite Islamic law of Sharia as it outlawed consumption of harmful substances. However, defenders of coffee saw prohibition of coffee as a sin because it prevented access to God's bounty. A physician by the name of Bekstid Muhammad studied coffee and determined coffee to be responsible for not only his own ills, but those of the public as well. His findings were not enough to prohibit coffee, but it could be used to issue a fatwa or counsel to determine coffee's legality. Such an argument was not strong, as opposition can always find a physician to give the opposite medical result in return. Medieval Islamic medicine still relied on ancient Greek understandings of anatomy, as understood by the Greek physician Galen. In summary, coffee was thought to potentially cause disease, melancholy, hemorrhoids, headaches, and insomnia. In regards to hemorrhoids, headaches, and insomnia, there is truth to these potential effects. In support of coffee, it was found to be good for women and was also helpful with a cold or a cough. Coffee also had the effect of making someone skinnier due to the appetite suppressant which it creates. It was suggested to avoid drinking coffee with milk as this could cause leprosy. Researching this statement led me to discover a myth about eating fish and drinking milk as a cause of contracting leprosy. The myth is false, but it turns out armadillos are actually common carriers of leprosy, so beware of those pesky armadillos. Another warning was to avoid drinking coffee on an empty stomach, as this led sellers of biscuits and other food to make a lot of money at coffee house entrances. It seems we miss this warning in our modern society, but I don't think most people would complain about having a pastry with their coffee. Coffee was thought to also be beneficial to the kidneys, as well as the soul, because it allowed people to perform their nighttime religious devotions. This latter effect was another benefit of coffee, namely being able to repel sleep, which would relate to the negative aspect of insomnia mentioned previously. It is interesting that supporters of coffee never really described coffee as a remedy or cure for things as later European writers would use coffee for. Coffee had shifted away from religious to secular during the first quarter of the 1500s, being out of use by the Sufi in Yemen. Now common in Hejaz and Egypt, coffee soon entered Medina, where they utilized it at home, and in Mecca, where coffee houses became the norm for coffee consumption. In the book, 
coffee and coffee houses, the origins of a social beverage in the medieval Near East. Coffee is compared to being to the Sufi Muslims what the Eucharist is to Christians, as it allowed for long nights of spiritual devotion, although not holding the same theological significance. Coffee houses then were important because they were designed for secular use, allowing the general population access to the growing coffee culture. Based on accounts from the period, it seems coffee houses were designed like taverns and wine houses. Many of the activities in coffee houses and governments attempt to shut them down were also similar to taverns. However, where taverns were viewed as inherently bad, serving primarily low-life individuals and existed outside of urban life, coffee houses were part of the urban culture and consisted of people from all walks of life. Coffee began to be sold from not only coffee houses, but also small coffee shops and even smaller coffee stalls. Coffee stalls are similar to today's little drive-through cafes since they are not designed for inside consumption. The stalls of this era, and still even today, are associated with business areas, often being used by business people to obtain coffee or even to close business deals. Coffee shops were slightly larger than coffee stalls functioning both as a grab-and-go, like a coffee stall, and as a dine-in, like coffee houses. They usually had a high stoop inside of the shop, or some benches outside of it, for customers to sit while they drank their coffee. There are records of storytellers performing at coffee shops, causing patrons to flood in, leaving standing room only, and often even filling up and spilling outside of the coffee shops. This trend of performance spaces for coffee will continue into coffee's history in the West, with countries like Germany utilizing coffee houses for live performances. Coffee shops were highly popular in Cairo, and coffee houses were found in many of the cities in the Middle East. Around 1570, Istanbul was said to have had nearly 600 coffee shops, although this number may be including stalls as well. Some coffee houses were surrounded by a sort of park or garden, with some being located next to a river or trees and vines. They were usually furnished and decorated with mats on the floors. Their ceilings were full of lamps, as coffee houses were popular at night, especially during Ramadan, when people would end their day of fasting with a cup of coffee. Coffee houses then, much like today, utilized a main room for seating with a serving area to obtain coffee from. Unlike modern times, it seems sugar and milk were uncommon additions to coffee. Cardamom, a sweet spice, was known to be added to coffee as well as mastic, or Arabic gum, and ambergris, a waxy substance from sperm whales. As to the process of brewing coffee, Either the coffee bean was used alone, or the coffee bean, along with the cherry, or cascara, were used. At the time, cascara was used by itself, leaving out the coffee bean altogether. Typically, the coffee cherry was used in the summer, and the coffee bean was used by itself in the winter. The preference of the cherry or coffee bean seems to have been a regional preference. As to the grinding process, there are accounts of the mortar and pestle being used, as well as the milling process. Coffee was then usually cooked in a large clay pot, serving as the coffee which would be used throughout the day. 
This is obviously different from our modern approach to freshly brewing coffee several times throughout a day in cafes and restaurants. These clay pots were used like cauldrons and were kept heated as to not allow the coffee to cool. In the Arabian Peninsula, there was a second form of coffee brewing, which involved brewing, cooling, and rebrewing coffee to produce a stronger brew, but one that is free of sediment. In general, though, most coffee was Turkish coffee, which was boiled water with powdered coffee added and then poured into serving cups. The coffee was served extremely hot at nearly boiling temperatures, with the powder forming a thick layer of sediment about one inch or so at the bottom of the cup. While coffee was sold by some mobile vendors in Europe and the Middle East, in general, physical establishments were the norm. This is because of the required tools to keep coffee heated. As for the Middle East especially, it was to be sipped and enjoyed slowly, not quickly on the go. Coffee houses, unlike mobile vendors, created a culture, one in which people could gather and interact with one another or to take part in entertainment. The social interaction and the atmosphere for intellectual conversations would play a key role in coffee's history moving forward. Next week, there will be no episode, as I am taking a trip to Hawaii. However, I will be making a video about coffee culture in Hawaii, as well as coffee growing at a local coffee plantation on the island of Kauai. And next time, in two weeks from now, we will look at coffee's development in the Middle East and its later spread to Europe after a man named Baba Budin stole coffee and took it to India. The show was written and produced by me, Ara Zaffer. If you have not already, please consider supporting this podcast series on Patreon. This episode, we will be giving away a custom History of Coffee shirt to one of our Patreon members. Make sure to join our community on social media at the Complete History Podcast Series. If you would like to contact us, you can message us through social media or at our email, completehistorypod at gmail.com. To close, here's a quote from Antoine Golen in his Bibliothèque Orientale, speaking of the Arabs. Quote, we are indebted to these great physicians for introducing coffee to the modern world through their writings, as well as sugar, tea, and chocolate. Stay tuned for more on coffee, as well as members' episodes on tea, chocolate, and more.